Guess what? We are in season seven of the Iron Woman podcast. I'm Rosalie, and I really like Crave Jerky pink flavor. Also, it's raining tacos from out of the sky. Tacos, no need to ask why. Just open your mouth and close your eyes. It's raining tacos, yum, 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 and yum. It's like a dream. Also, we couldn't do this without our sponsors, Wahoo Fitness, After C Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. holidays i feel like we just a second ago we're talking about thanksgiving and now christmas is around the corner i feel like that's how life goes the older i get the faster everything moves and i think triathlon makes us makes time seem like it's going faster too because it's always like you know you live your life in like these chunks of like training for a race doing the race recovering from the race and it just makes time go by so fast not that that's a bad thing i think you know, we can appreciate the moment we're in, but, and it makes me really, really aware of like how, how much I have to appreciate the moment I'm in, but it is moving fast. Yeah. Are you doing anything to get ready for the holidays or any holiday traditions or anything like that? I don't know if I could say, call them traditions, but I did do some decorating since I got back from Indian Wells and I put up a tree and, um, some lights and, some fun, you know, holiday decorations. I do like decorating for, I didn't really, you know, I did Halloween and then kind of moved into Christmas. So even though I'm only here for a couple of weeks and I missed a couple of weeks while I was out of town, I think it's important to kind of like celebrate. And I like, I like him. It makes me happy. How about you? Yeah. Well, I like to say, I think I won the award in my apartment complex for like the first Christmas decorator that was up because my mom was here for Thanksgiving and I had her help me like day after Thanksgiving, we got out my little tub of Christmas decorations and got everything up because I knew I wouldn't do it after that on my own. So I have had my lights and my tree up for a while now. And I do, I love like the feeling of Christmas and a little Christmas candle burning and stuff like that. It just, it's like the holiday spirit. And I miss that big snow from when we were in Indian Wells. And so things still are like a little snowy. So it's feeling like Christmas here in Charlottesville probably a little bit more than the sunny 70 degrees that we had in California. So I like that was funny too. though. I did appreciate how they would wrap the palm trees in like green and red lights to be Christmas spirited. <laughs> it is different, but I mean, I guess that's how, you know, a lot of people celebrate Christmas like that, you know, and new year's and we think of it as cold and dark, but you know, I look at the pictures like of that. the triathletes down in Australia and stuff and they're gearing up for, for Christmas and like, on the beach. It's a very different feel, but it's very, very fun. Yes. Well, I hope you have lots of fun celebrations in coming your way for the holidays. And just so our listeners are aware, we are taking a two week break from recording during Christmas and new year's. So we'll be back though in early January with lots more great content. And Haley, if you haven't finished your Christmas shopping yet, we 
have a wonderful sponsor that has a really good gift idea for people who might be in a pinch because now you're really at the limit. So this will be out Thursday. And so odds of something getting shipped to you in time are very slim. So what's a great idea is gift card and FTC nutrition right now is doing a gift card special. And so you can get them They're sent online. You don't have to wait for anything in the mail. And if you get two or if you get a hundred dollars in gift cards, so two fifty dollar cards or a hundred dollars full one, then you'd receive a free way pure energy. So you can like give yourself a little gift while you're gifting to some others. And ultra athletes use nutrition, you know this is gonna be put to good use. And I'm personally a huge fan of gifts that like get used rather than some more like things. So this is a, a great idea. <laughs> consumerism wait is this like conscious consumerism when it's like you're helping out other companies and becoming a consumer that's like that's what everyone likes but gift cards are that sounds like a good idea I feel like I'm going to be giving a lot of gift cards because I've done almost no no shopping and even if it's not conscious consumerism it's kind of a way because they're helping us consciously and they're supporting our women so we like that (laughs) yeah (laughs) there's all only good things that come out of this but um yeah if you are, if you are still looking for some gifts, F2C nutrition gift card, always, always a good, good gift and use that code iron women. So we get a little bit of credit. We appreciate you. And don't worry guys. So before we go on a break, we do have a great interview for you this week to listen for anyone who is still training and maybe, you know, needs something to listen to while you're on a trainer this week. I'm trying to think what you could be training for still. What do we still have races? I guess Cone is in like Cone and Dubai are in January. Okay. So maybe we have, yeah. So if you're listening and you need some more content to get you through that, write us a mailbag questions and we'll, we'll help you with that like new year energy training content, some mailbag questions, which you can always send them into ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. But this week we are talking to Haley, one of your old friends. I love this connection. Tell us more about Samantha. Yes. So we are talking with Samantha Arsenal Livingstone, who is a former teammate of mine at the University of Georgia. And she's also a gold medalist. Um, she won a gold medal as part of the four by 200 meter free relay at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. After that, she went on to the University of Georgia, where she was a co-captain of our 2005 NCAA championship swimming team. I was a sophomore that year. She was a senior. And I can tell you one of the reasons we won that championship was because of our senior leadership. They were incredible. It was, you know, they, they, they steered that ship in the right direction. Um, she was also a seven time NCAA all American and was equally known for her success in the classroom where she had the highest GPA of all athletes in her graduating class. She is one smart cookie. Sam is now the mom of four girls and she is a high performance coach and entrepreneur living in Massachusetts. So we're excited to learn more about her journey and what she's doing now. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride, and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including kicker smart trainers, element bike computers, and ticker heart rate monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. I am so grateful to be here. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. 
<laughs> we are so excited to have you. And your story is one of the most inspiring I've ever heard. But there's also a part of it that always shocks me. At the 2000 Summer Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia, you led off the United States women's four by 200 meter freestyle relay that won a gold medal. You were 18 years old, seemingly on top of the world, but you described standing on that podium with a gold medal around your neck. And in that moment, you were actually thinking about your body and saying to yourself, I need to be thinner. Mm. Why do you think that even at the very pinnacle of your sport, that's where your thoughts went? Oh my goodness. I think I was expecting in some way for that moment to fill me and to make me feel whole and battling the voice of that inner critic that we all have. We have some degree of that inner chatter and mine had become so incredibly toxic and so loud that it was robbing me of feeling the joy that was that moment. So it was this combination of feeling so proud and humbled and honored and exhausted and relieved in all of the things. And also in the moments, in those small transitions, stepping up to the block, you know, up to the podium, down off the podium to do the media circle. It was those moments in between when I was alone with myself, where the inner critic would roar and tell me that I wasn't athletic enough, almost as if I didn't actually earn the medal. I now know there's a name for that. <laughs> we can get into that if you want. Yeah. The imposter syndrome. Yeah. That's, it was, it was rough. And I actually, I have two questions about this. So yeah. one, I would love to know, like, have you been able to talk to the other women from that team to see like, you know, was, were you alone? Like, is this something that, you know, only you were feeling and you were kind of like alone in that state or was it shared? And then I guess my second question is, mm -hmm. have you been able to allow yourself in hindsight, even obviously to like go back to that moment and appreciate it for what it is. And how did you like go through that process? If so, Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. So to answer your first question, yes, I've been able to talk to some, I still keep in touch with my three teammates that swam with me at night and the teammates, there were six of us total four swam in the morning. And then there were two that dropped off and two more that swam at night. If that makes sense for what you see on TV and not only that, but the entire team in 2000, I've, I've reached out and had conversations with Olympians since then, 2004, 2008, 2012. I've had conversations with Olympians from before I swam and made the team. And unfortunately, it, it, it's way common. Like, it, I was not, it's, it, it's rare to hear a story of someone who didn't have those bombarding inner thoughts of the inner critic to what degree you, you know, the individual athlete acted on it varies, but absolutely knowing that I'm not alone has brought some sense of healing and ignited my passion for doing what I do today, for sure, which is helping, you know, helping athletes and being a mental health advocate and all the things that we can talk, talk about. But the part about healing, it came from having the conversations. I think I was buried in shame. So it took me literally until the Rio games. So in 2016, I now have four little girls and one was born in the summer of 2016. So she was born in May. So I was a new mom to four, right? I had four girls and they were so interested. My oldest is now eight. So she was six at the time and they were totally, they were just loved that I actually knew people that were on the TV and they were into the games for the first time really in their life. And so they inspired me to dig through my bins. And it was that summer where I 
didn't stumble upon. I'd kept them shut for a reason. I'd really buried that part of me. And when I opened and cracked open those bins to share the metals and the, I mean, I have everything you could possibly imagine still from the, that experience. I was 18 and it was a dream, you know, and, it, and pulling out the clothes they were trying on and the metals and all the things I stumbled deep in the bins upon my logbooks in which you can hear the voice of my 18 year old self and you can see the words. And I don't think it was until that moment that I truly realized how sick I was and it kind of, you know, it's, I literally opened the logbook and it shed light on this really painful part of me that I had buried because the story I told myself when I won was that no one's going to want to hear the whole truth. Like they want to hear the Hollywood version. They want to hear this Hallmark version. They want to hear like this 18 year old girl who all the good parts, the parts you know that are typically, you know, above the, if you think of an iceberg on the, on the surface. And it was in that moment that I knew I had to share. I had to start sharing the darker parts and the harder parts because I knew that I wasn't alone. And that process of sharing and obviously working through and going back to hold that 18-year-old metaphorically, I have been able to heal and see, and I'm proud of it. Like I wear my Olympic stuff now and I have it up. I didn't for a long time. So yeah, it's been this, it's been a journey. And I think it stretches beyond winning an Olympic gold medal. I think there are these moments, promotions. It's kind of expands into all the areas where we feel like we have been, where that imposter syndrome comes in and we're burying parts of ourselves that feel broken. Yeah. And Sam, 16 years is a really long time. Mm -hmm. And and obviously when we go through that, that, you know, that time frame, there was a progression during that time. So can you talk to us a little bit about the months following the games when you were struggling with an eating disorder, depression, mm-hmm. and a shoulder injury? How were you able to, you know, return to some semblance of health in that time? Because you've had a mm-hmm. lot of successes in those 16 years too. It hasn't been 16 years of down and then now you're doing better, but you've had some ups and downs in that time as well. Yes. And we were teammates for the best part of my career. I'll, I'll be honest because it was the time where I was healthy and so following, so to kind of, you know, catch you up to where I was post Olympics, it was a free fall. It was an absolute free fall. I was going in as a, I deferred my admission as an incoming freshman. So I got recruited with the class that were then sophomores. So I was coming in one year kind of behind my class mid, mid semester because the Sydney games were in Australia. So summer season slipped. So I was half, they were halfway through the semester. So it was already going to be hard. And on top of that, this new title and walking into a team environment away from my club coach, who I was unhealthy, had an unhealthy dependence on for, for my resilience. And, and just, it was a, yeah, we could talk about that too. (laughs) So, but being removed from that environment and away from him. And then the surgeon telling me, if you continue to swim, you're, you're not going to be able to swim again. Because sh- I had torn tendons that were over, it was an injury that was over a year old, but I just swam through it to get through the games. So all of those pieces, my coach, when I arrived, was like, okay, he saw, you need help. So it landed me in the office of Greg Harden, who many people don't know about, who is, he's, he's literally, he saved my life. He did. Because I would have to go there every week and sit there, and he was just—he did—he no BS. He would—he saw through it, and he was able to help me heal and separate my identity, which is such a thing in sports. Like 
he was the one that taught me that I swim. I am not a swimmer. And so through that, we stripped, you know, the conditions away from, you know, at that time, like I, my successes was tied to my, you know, my success was tied to my identity. So when I was doing well, like winning a gold medal, I felt good and kind of right. But there was that hidden part too. But when I couldn't swim any longer, I didn't know who I was. So that two year period of seeing him every week, then I realized when I got to the point after shoulder surgery, my shoulder was doing better and I was healthier and happier in my skin because I saw a nutritionist and a whole team intervened. I was able to transfer to the University of Georgia and swim. I, I met you, Haley. <laughs> yes. You know, and it was like I, I arrived there healthy and happy and free in my own body and able to just walk confidently in my own skin onto the pool deck and winning that national championship with you in 2005 was absolutely the highlight of my entire swimming career because getting 30 girls and experiencing that together, being on that podium without the inner critic roaring. I mean, it was, it it was awesome and it was so fulfilling. And so that, after that post-retirement period, I kind of just threw myself into teaching and coaching and doing all the things. And then marriage and family and life. (laughs) We landed back here because we were in Atlanta for a while and we landed back here closer to family. Um, and that's when, you know, my husband took a job at Williams college and I don't know how much we want to get into this, but my, my, so she's third in line, but she's a twin. Um, daughter Mia had open heart surgery. So this is now five years ago. And that was the absolute catalyst that cracked me open that began this journey of deeper healing that allowed me to start talking openly about struggles and successes and achievement and failure and all the things. Yeah. And Sam, we definitely will continue to get into that, but I did want to ask, because I think I was listening to a podcast you were on and you gave a little bit about your swimming background. And I think your story is really unique about, you know, I think many people might hear your, your story where we pick kind of picked up, right? right? From Mm -hmm. that point in the Olympic games and then through college and struggling. And I think people often assume, I know I'm guilty of this, that especially with swimmers, you probably had swamps you could could float in the water. Right. Mm. And like, it was that, like, you must've been so competitive in swimming, like, you know, five hours a day from age four on, like all these things you hear swimmers and like, that's what we're doing to our kids. But I think your story is actually very unique in that, like you didn't necessarily grow up in this like hardcore swimming environment. And so what do you think it is that, you know, still cause that sort of pressure despite maybe not growing up with it, you know, for year after year. And then what, we have a lot of parents that listen to the podcast and we, you know, a lot of coaches. That's where my mind is going. Yeah. And so like, what can we watch for in our young athletes, you know, because I think a lot of people would say they're doing a better thing maybe by not having them, you know, like, of course I, it, it will release some of the competitive side if we don't start them at age two, you know, but that's mm-hmm. not always the truth. Yeah. So I think, so the pressure, you meaning self-imposed pressure mm-hmm. when you ask that question. So I think, well, perfectionism, I now know, I mean, that was, a, that was a filter, a lens with which I viewed the world. And that is, there's a genetic component to it. And I think that you know, classic overachiever and type A, I mean, a control freak, like all these things, right? So it was the combination of environment and also genetic predisposition. But I think I've combined with this insane curiosity to know what it would be like to be a world champion. I mean, I had that dream 
it wasn't crystal clear. It, it was first I wanted to be a gymnast and I'm 5'11. So like it didn't, that wasn't going to happen. But when I was younger and watching, you know, Jenny Thompson from New England and seeing, seeing real humans do these things, I had this insane desire to know what it would be like up there. And so I think that curiosity then as you walk through the world, I think that was the that that's the magic that we all have inside of us that that we're, when we're connected to that we're unstoppable and then as you travel through life and you journey on you hear all these messages and I internalized them and so at 14 when I was told that you know my, my body was changing and my first love was swim was, was soccer not swimming and I think that's what you're alluding to I started swimming and made the team at nine and I was like, I had the dream to be an Olympian at eight before I made the team. And I also played soccer. So I, soccer was my first love and passion. And at 14, when my time started to slow, my coaches said, hey, you got to give it up. You got to pick one. And I was better at swimming when you looked at my raw talent. And that, so at that time, it was this clashing hard things, giving up something I loved, transitioning away from my friends, and also internalizing the messages around me. And so something that I'm very passionate about is helping shift culture away from shame. And so as parents are listening, I think questions to be asking are how, what, how is, what are the messages the coaches are sending? How are they communicating with their athletes? What kinds of things, how is the athlete hearing or how are we as humans hearing the messages that we're receiving? Because when the coaches on the pool deck at 14 started talking about my chest and my body in a sexual way, I internalized that as something was wrong with me. And that planted the seeds for what became later, my, you know, what developed into my eating disorder. So I don't know that every child that has this burning desire to be great in the world champion is going to have the same experience of an eating disorder. I do think that the drive and the combination of all the pieces and then being immersed into a really unhealthy environment was kind of what, what caused that. So I think it's important. It is, it's a, what you're asking about parents. I mean, I ask myself, what's the balance between becoming a helicopter parent and one that's in the know, you know, when it comes to our kids, I've, my kids play sports. So yeah, it's a really good question. And I don't know that there's the right answer. I think that being aware and having, you know, getting a pulse on how the coaches communicate is really important. And Sam, this past year, you actually spoke at the USA Swimming Coaches Convention, and you, like you've mentioned before, it says, you know, you, you wanted to tell your story because the people in that room were part of the culture that contributed to your illness. So mm -hmm. I really applaud your courage in getting up there and speaking to them. How do you think your message was received? Mm, so that was one of the hardest things I've had to do. Yeah, it took tons of courage to do that. And from what I've heard, you know, receiving the feedback has been, it's like every, they're the people that were in that room are stakeholders and decision makers. They were part, they're part of governing organizations on a local level. So that's who I was talking to leaders. And there have been a handful, more than a handful that have reached out to me to collaborate in some way because they understand the importance of mental health. When we look at our young, you know, we look at our upcoming athletes, anxiety is at the highest level it's ever been. And it's on the rise depression and loneliness, these things are real and they affect not only that the athletes in the athletic arena, but their home, everything, right? Every part of them. So I think there's a real need to have these conversations. And so, you know, from what I gathered from Lindsay, the national team director, who was also my teammate in Sydney, we swim on the relay together. 
and from a couple other people at USA Swimming, the feedback was really positive. And then the conversations I've had from that, it, there's almost this like thirst for more knowledge. The, the coaches are the coaches and parents are just they want more knowledge. They want to know what to do, how to handle these situations. And so I really feel like there's this we're on the cusp of this cultural shift. You know, there's still that pushback from that old guard way of thinking that, you know, compassion can't have that in the athletic arena. But I think it I think it was well received. Yeah. It's important. And so probably one of the things that your talk helped to get people talking about was, you know, many of the successful female athletes and their struggles with an eating disorder. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is kind of a it's all too common, unfortunately, as you said, at the highest level, Haley and I talked to Jesse Diggins earlier this year, and she shared a lot of her story with us as well. And it's, it's a very similar theme there. And one of the things that we tend to hear is that a healthier lifestyle, like they all know the healthier lifestyle is better, but in the depth of the disorder, they didn't care about the long-term effect on their health at all. Mm-hmm. And like, they could have acknowledged it and said, they just literally didn't care at that moment. And to have that world-class performance, you know, they wanted that above all else. So how do we change this type of thinking with the coaches and the parents and everyone that, you know, has, is now ready to have this cultural shift? Yes. Well, so I can't, I'm so jealous. I don't know if that's the word that you had Stacy on. I've like Stacy Sims. I read her book, Roar. I recommend it to my athletes. Like we dig in there and I, and coaches, I think those conversations, are so needed because I do not believe. So here's what the eating disorder voice will tell you is that it's actually helping you to perform, which is it's BF. That's the voice of the eating disorder. And so being able to help our young athletes, veteran athletes, elite athletes at all levels to, to go in and filter out and differentiate what is who, what's my voice, what's the actual truth and nourishing my body and getting it ready to perform at an elite level and optimize that versus what's this eating disorder voice telling me. And the more deprived you are of food, the like it's harder and harder to be rational. You really can't. Your brain does not function when you're not not nourishing it with food. So I would start there by challenging that belief. I think it's a BS belief that you know that I'm going to be better if I deprive myself. I think that when we put the right tools in our hands, we don't need to go to those extremes. We can blow that up. So we, I think it's kind of a combination effort of helping it's multiple, multiple layers, helping our, our girls, our young girls understand that they, their who they are and what they do is not the same thing, which allows them to take feedback on, okay, here's, here's what we need you to do. This is sort of a, t- a tangent. So stop me if it get too far, but I was having, I led this coach circle and one of the conversations that came up was when I tell my female athletes, you know, they got to, if, if you have men and women in the pool together and they did horribly on a set of 10, 100s, let's say they get back and you say, you didn't push off the wall, you know, your, your walls, your streamline were off, whatever your flip turns can be better. The girls don't talk to me for a week and the boys are like, okay, work on flip turns. And so when you think about that, that's the, that's her real life experience of the difference. Right. And you dig into that, what I'm seeing and hearing is that the girls are internalizing that message of I'm not good enough. And so if we can get that message early on and understand that that she's talking about your flip turns and your streamline, not who you are, you are enough. 
and there's a difference there, then we can start to build. We won't, we won't end up full-blown eating disorders. Not everyone, but the preventative proactive piece is what I think we need to change. And then really digging into the BS beliefs that are around malnourished, you know, not nourishing ourselves and putting in our athletes' hands the tools, like what, what Stacey's providing and Roar, you know, starting that conversation and doing more studies, you know, like she pointed out, the lack of information that we have around it. Does that answer your question? I get so fired up that you're going to have to steer me back. <laughs> we we always love, uh, you know, Stacey Sims and all of her wisdom. And she is an incredible person, what she's doing. And I definitely agree. Like, I think when you look at it from a scientific perspective, it's fascinating and it's not mm-hmm. taboo. And it's great that we're having these conversations. But when we talk about coaching, I do want to you know, touch on earlier this year, the NCAA swimming made the news when the Tucker center for research on girls and women in sport at the university of Minnesota gave the sport an F grade because Mm -hmm. of its lack of female coaches in on female teams Mm -hmm. and track and cross country also received F grades. So those are a lot of the, you know, those are our feeder sports and triathlon. Mm -hmm. So you are on USA Swimming's Women in Coaching Task Force. So why do you think we have so many few female head coaches in swimming? And can you tell us what is being done to get and keep more women in coaching? Mm, so this is such, there's so much conversation happening around this. And I'm so grateful for the work Nicole is doing at the Tucker Center. So why? I mean, there's not one simple answer, but I think when you look at the women who've been able to secure the positions as head coach, like one of our coaches, Carol, right at, at Texas now, and you look at what they're doing in the path that they've, you know, that they've walked. So I think that we can learn a lot from understanding how they got where they are and their mindset around it. I think that right now the culture is, there's still, like I mentioned earlier, that old guard pushback. There's not a lot lot of respect. They have to, you know, I think that a lot of women are um, afraid to apply for positions where they don't, this is not just in swimming and not just in coaching, but I, there was a study and I have no idea which one I read so many different ones, but about women applying for positions, job, job opportunities. And it's like a really ridiculously high number of women are not going to apply unless they meet or exceed every single you know, qualification that's listed, whereas a man will have a few and apply. This is overgeneralizing, but the gist of it was that. And so I think that a lot of women, there's this battle that they have to, they're swimming upstream. So there's this cultural current that has this good old boy system in place. So they're having to prove themselves when they're already feeling this not enoughness. So they're not applying for positions, right? That they're, that they make, that they maybe could go after. And then another layer with, regards to coaching, you know, rising in ranks and getting up to those higher levels is the lack of opportunity to learn the skills. So if you look at the assistant coaches or you look at age group coaches, so the bulk of women in coaching and USA Swimming, I think, fired back with the fact that more than 50% of their coaches are women or it's about 50%. But when you look at where they, where they are, they're in age group positions. So they're in, in, and some of them choose to be there. I think those are the questions we have to ask. How many women are choosing those positions and how many want to elevate and move on to a different level? How many women are leaving the coaching profession to by choice to be with their families and raise their families? Because that, quite frankly, is really challenging. And without a supportive partner, it's almost impossible. And so those are you know, those are the some of the real life 
struggles and challenges. And those that are in assistant positions aren't, they're being told, you know, you run travel, you do the food, you do the meal plan, you do this. And they're not being taught the skill set necessary to actually hold the head coaching positions. And so the task force, I mean, we're looking at who, which was started by Susan Teeter, who is at Princeton as head coach for 40 years. So I think back, like how long she was like, what a pioneer. And we're working on trying to address you know, where do we go and feed these ideas to USA Swimming? What can we do? How can we support? And so I think the mentorship circle that I referenced a little bit ago was one of the one, one, one of the pieces that I've been charged with is how do we mentor? How do we how do we get our younger coaches in conversations with veteran coaches so that they can learn and absorb? Because I think there is this fear piece too of not feeling, you know, when that when you have that not enough lens on. So there's a lot being done and there's a lot that needs that still needs to be done. But I feel like we're on, you know, we're, I don't know, we're on this, we're on the cusp of shifting things. You know, the conversation's being had a lot more. So yeah, there's, there's a lot more I could say about that. Just, but do you have, yeah, I mean, specific questions related to what we're doing. I'm more than happy to share. <laughs> no, I think that gives us really great insight into yeah. kind of, how that massive problem at a macro level like, is taken, right? And it's teamwork and it's pioneers from all levels of the sport. And so we're just super lucky that now people are willing to do the work and, and make change. So we also thank you for being a part of that, which oh, is great. Yeah. And we did want to talk to you about your daughter, Mia. You've written a lot about her and you mentioned her earlier in talking to us. And she's one of your twins who was born with a congenital heart defect and had open heart surgery, nearly dying when she was only one year old. How did going through Mia's struggles with her change your perspective on life in general? Mm, in so many ways. I think what hit me the most looking back at this healing process is that I spent so much of my life worrying about what other people thought, like worrying about things that I couldn't control. So the fear of judgment and the fear that, you know, standing on top of the podium, that fear of not being enough, all of that, all of that energy and time I wasted on those things that I couldn't control. And so it's really, so that experience has helped me be more mindful and more present and opened up space you know, I've dropped my armor. Like it's not, I I know now that it's not about trying harder in the sense of if I just try hard enough, then I'll be happy and at peace. It doesn't work that way. You know, and I know that from my, that's the parallel with that podium moment. You know, we're not going to arrive to this place free from struggle. So what we can do is control how we respond and we can stack our toolbox filled with these tools, which I've had to do because I've come home with PTSD from that experience. And so I've had to learn, like, I can't control when I get triggered. What I can do and what I can control is my response to that reaction by my body, which when I think of, so there's two things that make me think of your world and this and iron, what you do as iron women. And those days of going back and forth of when we didn't know, when we didn't know if she would make it, we didn't know if it would be a transplant. We didn't know what was happening they were the most brutal days of my life. And it's, I don't know, I guess maybe for a non-athlete, it'd be a weird, you know, weird parallel here. But I drew on that familiar strength of 
going one more rep and doing one more thing. And those sets where you just do not think that it's going to end. You have no idea how you're going to make it. And you just literally, it's one stroke after another, one foot in front of the other, and you, and you do it. And so I remember texting my coach during that and saying like this, I can't, this is, this is a familiar feeling. This strength is this familiar feeling in place that I, I've, I've had to tap into before. And so there's so much I've learned from that experience. And, you know, I think the biggest thing is that this is it, like this is our one life. And so we can wear our, you know, we can, we can sit in our life and look at all the ways that we're not enough and all the things that we're doing wrong. And we can hyperanalyze and ruminate at night about all the ways that we're falling short. Or we can choose to put on our, what, my, what my coach calls appreciation glasses and look at all that we are doing and all the ways that we are impacting and all the things we have achieved. And I, this leads me to this one of the points that you made. I don't know which podcast it was where you talked about, you were, you were talking about the conference that you just went to, Haley. Oh, yes. And how Outspoken. The, Women in Triathlon yeah, out, Conference. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And how the speaker said, not just to sprint. And oh, so yeah. like that, right? So it's, it's the letting the judgment go and removing the judgment, the self-judgment, the judgment from others, like releasing all of that and actually honoring who we are and saying like, I, I'm, I get to do this, you know, and it's just living with a renewed sense. I feel alive. I feel truly alive. And that's what, yeah, that's what staring death in the face has taught me how to live. Well, we are super happy that Mia is a happy six-year-old now. <laughs> yeah, I, she posts pictures of her running up hills, and I think yeah. it's, it's super cool. But there is another post that I've seen that it's really stuck with me, and it's about your husband, Rob, who is a strength and conditioning coach. And you've written about how people will see Rob with his four girls and actually oh. comment, oh, I'm so sorry you don't have a son. You're going to get me all fired up. How do you two handle that situation? (laughs) Well, so isn't this all just so related to everything we've been talking about? Like women in the coaching arena, all that, right? It's this idea that somehow as women, we're not enough or that he needs, he needs his boys to feel fulfilled. And I don't know. I, I nearly lost it when we were in, when we were in a Starbucks one day, which I don't know if that's the post, but it happens all the time. I mean, everywhere we go in front of the girls, people will say, I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. And finally, you know, it was after a woman said to me, Oh, you have four girls. That's why your husband's not here with you. And I was like, first of all, what you said doesn't make sense. Like second of all, you have no idea why he's not with us. And why would you ever say that in front of my girls? Like right here. So I think it's these messages that we internalize that those are the messages I internalized and just downloaded and they became part of the way that I saw myself in the world. And so, yeah, he, you, he is, he loves his four. He's at healthy practice with his girls right now. Like he is, he's not feeling any sense of lack and maybe some men would, but just the notion that the girls themselves aren't enough gets me fired up. Why aren't they enough? What is it that he's missing? You know? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I could, yeah. Sam, you've taken a lot of big leaps in your life from transferring swim teams in college, uh, leaving your teaching career, starting your coaching business, all of these things, you know, that you've gone through that take a lot of courage and confidence to do. 
what gave you that confidence and have you ever like looked back with regrets and, you know, is there something you're doing in your own parenting to try and help your daughters maybe have some of that same confidence that the mom has? Oh, so I think confidence comes from that knowingness that we can do hard things and that we can rise. And so the leaps of faith, truly, I feel like that, that magic that I was talking about earlier that, you know, when I was eight years old or seven years old and I could feel that inside of me, like that connection to that is what's pulled me through. So I feel like that's this connection to something bigger and greater than me. And that's trust and faith and taking those leaps. As I got older, it got harder up until Mia's, you know, until Mia's episode and her open heart surgery, there were, I, I think I kind of guarded myself and was afraid to fail and fall. So I didn't take as many risks. And so it, after her surgery, I've taken wild risks. I mean, like these massive leaps of faith because much like I did when I was eight, nine and, and naive to the messages that I had internalized. And I think it's because I know now that I can rise. Like I, I will find a way and, and I will, you know, even if I hit rock bottom, that I'm going to move toward tools that are going to help me get back up again. And that when we fall, like being afraid of falling stops us from being alive and living our life and living our dreams. And I think that we live in a culture that is, we're afraid to fall. And I take the risks now because I know that falling is part of the process. And we hear about, you know, this one, you know, the stories of failure and, you know, all the famous people who have failed before us, but to sit with that is painful. So it takes those coping skills and rising skills. And I think that's where the deep confident courage comes from. Like that's where that knowingness that I'm going to be able to do this because at the end of it, on the other side of it, I'm, I'm, I will rise and I, I will learn something from this. Yeah. There's so much power in believing mm. in yourself that even if everything goes bad, you're going to find a way. So find I, a way. I admire you for that. Um, and I do have to ask because I have seen pictures of you pushing a triple stroller up the hills of Massachusetts. <laughs> And we already know you're a fantastic swimmer. Is there any chance we'll see you on a triathlon start line anytime well, so soon? That's the just, right? So that was a BS story that I was telling myself that, that, that imposter piece of having, I'm, you know, I am an Olympic gold medalist. And I think when you're so successful in one area, then you get to the start line. It's taken me a long time to be okay with people passing me and running, right? Like after having twins, there's a lot of reasons you have to run, walk. And so I would do, I did a half marathon and I was like run walking. Right. And so, yes, I absolutely, I love spinning too. So I love, I finally got a bike and I did sign up for a sprint try and then it got canceled, but it took me a while because I had been saying to myself, Oh, it's just, and I'm like, no, no, like this is, yeah, no, I feel I am totally excited to move into that space. Yes. If we want to talk about the open water, though, <laughs> and becoming comfortable with that, that's a whole other story. The unknown and uncertainty. An yes. Olympian who struggles with open water. I feel like people would find that story extremely refreshing. Oh, my gosh. Are you So, yes. So, I signed up for the Swim Across America. Have you done the Swim Across America event? I haven't, but I've, I've admired them from afar. Yeah. So, I did. So, for a lot of reasons went to the one in Nantucket. It just felt compelled to give back, felt very connected and signed up for it, gave it no thought, like swimming. I can do this. I can swim a mile. 
a week before we're on family vacation and my older brother swam. He's the reason that I got into the sport. He swam in college as well. We're on, I forget what lake, up in Maine. And I realized that I'm doing this open water and I've not ever put goggles on and a cap in open water. And I'm like, okay, so what do I need to know? And he's like, oh, you really have never done this before? Let's go. And I, it was triggering. So I shared with you, I have PTSD. It was legitimately triggering. I was convulsing. And so to paint the picture, so those seven days, for the last four days, we went out and he was literally by my side. My girls were on the dock. This is not hyperbole. They were standing there shouting all the mantras that we have all over our house. You can do hard things, mom. We believe in you. You've got this, like all the things. And we did, we practiced. And I, you know, by the fourth day, and then by the time that I got to Nantucket, I wasn't convulsing and I was able to actually to enjoy the experience, except when the crabs <laughs> go underneath me. <laughs> they just, I, I was cool with lots of other things. And then you see this massive crab and I would have a moment and then I would just get back to my swimming. But yeah, no, the unknown, the lakes and the da- the darkness, there's a lot there for me of, of, I think, letting go. You know, that, that was not easy. And I think honestly, when I talked about it and I wrote about it, there were a lot of former swimmers who like pools who struggle with the open water piece. Did you, did either of you? (laughs) I didn't, I, I didn't, but I mean, I struggle with enough of other things. (laughs) um, I, uh, Alyssa, did you ever struggle with open water? Oh, I still like my mind is constantly thinking. I mean, I could be in a crystal clear lake and my mind is thinking about like, what thing could possibly be down there that's going to like, you know, nibble my toes off. And it's it, it like, I, yeah, I have to consciously like remove those thoughts and replace them with other thoughts yeah. and stuff like that. But it's so refreshing to hear that someone, I always assumed like the really good swimmers were not thinking those things. So that's nice yeah. to hear for sure. You know what he did with me too, which was so powerful. It was actually, I did a TEDx in January last year and we had to edit it because I went over on time. But the first part, the first story that I told was of him helping me. And the the last, the final swim with him, he had me drop underwater and just look around. So we were going, you know, just drop straight to the bottom. And I didn't, I was like, I cannot touch. It's so slimy. I was literally like freaking out. And I finally, you know, I went down a couple different times and I sat there and looked around and I was able to be in the moment and I felt the shift from slimy to silky. And it was so powerful because it is our perspective, right? When we take the lens and we shift how we're seeing things, it changes everything. And so that was a, that was a really powerful moment. Silky, not slimy. Well, I'll try and tell myself that next time. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. I'll let you know. But I know uh, our listeners will be really excited to follow along, especially hopefully as you do a triathlon. And where can they find you now online? So my Instagram, my I'm a S Livingston with the, so <laughs> can you drop it in the show notes so that they don't yes, try to write it all? We definitely will have it all in the and, show notes. Yeah. And then at S Livingstone Wellness on Facebook, I've tried, are you two on Twitter? I've kind of, I started an account. I just have not made it over there yet. I think uh-huh. Instagram and Facebook are the, are the big places. Yeah, to be, those so, two yeah. places. And then my website, samanthalivingstone.com. I share, I write blogs over there and I have lots of free gifts and goodies on that site too. 
And what about if anyone is interested in your coaching? Because you do, you coach where through your website is that the so best through the website? Yeah, and then you can hit it, if you re- go down the bottom, it will say if they're looking for. So I have two different paths for people. One is one on one, so I work with athletes, high performance coaching, mindset, all the good mindset stuff. And then I also have an academy, so it's group coaching, but it's an online. My my. Um, career, my training, I have a master's in education. So it's like my passion. So I created a course, an online course to help people walk through this process of rising free. And that also is, you know, we do live coaching every month in there too. So the Academy is an awesome place. Yeah. So both are, all of it's all over on my website and they can, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. I love connecting. I love surrounding myself and listening to your podcast. Like the energy, it just literally elevates such high energy and good vibes. So I I think Haley carries us on the energy portion. I have to give (laughs) that to her, (laughs) but thank you so much for joining us. We know you're busy and sharing your story. I know Haley and I are inspired and our listeners are too. Thank you. Okay, Haley, I'm hoping that you can help me decipher some of the swimming, like, ways of the world, I guess. I don't even know. So not necessarily the terminology, but I did catch when Samantha was talking about her relay gold medal. She was talking about how she was the evening swimmer and she didn't have to swim in the morning swim of the relay. So in swimming, like, do you guys have multiple people subbing in and out for the relays? This is a great question. And yes, for USA swimming and, you know, Olympic teams that can afford it, you'll have six people qualify for the relay events. So that's the four by 100 free relay and the four by 200 free relay. So you'll have at the trials, they'll take the top six swimmers and that way in the morning you'll have four swimmers, but then two of those swimmers will be replaced if they, you know, when they qualify for finals for the evening swim. So there's six people who totally swim, who swim total, but you really want to save your fastest people keep them fresh for the evening. So you have a better chance at a medal and your better performance. So it's it's complicated. It's kind of political. There's always a lot of controversy over who gets to swim in the morning, who gets to swim at night. And for Sam in her case, where she led off the evening relay, that's a very prestigious position. And I mean, it just shows she was in her prime. She was on fire for that event and came away with a gold medal. Well, we definitely happy that Sam came on the show and shared her story. And I think that many of our listeners will find it super relatable and hopefully inspiring and maybe can use some of her tips or, um, her coaching or maybe try out her Academy. I think that's a great idea too. So thanks again, Sam, for coming on and Haley, I guess this is it for us for a couple of weeks. So happy holidays and happy new year. Thanks, Alyssa. Yeah, I'll be uh, looking forward to catching up with you in early 2019 and kicking off the new year. This is a special song. It's me and my friend's song that we made ourselves. This song is called Here I Am, Get Ready for the Chorus. I am here, now you cannot take me. I will stand up this whole entire time. I am strong, now you cannot beat me. I will stand up because I am here. The Iron Woman Podcast is a live, feisty media production. Our hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chara, and our awesome editors, Aaron Hamilton. Also, we couldn't do this without our sponsors, Wahoo Fitness, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen. <laughs>